This is Lou Augusta. Welcome to A Rumor of Empathy. Today's podcast is entitled Empathy versus Bullying Recommendations for Students, Parents, Teachers, and Administrators. This podcast continues and develops the work of the previous two podcasts on empathy and bullying, where bullying was defined. Work was started to limit and get our power back over and against bullying by setting limits, setting boundaries, using a rigorous and critical empathy. A word of caution up front. In the following recommendations, when the recommendation directly addresses the student, the intention is that you, the parent or grown-up or caretaker or responsible adult, address that guidance to the student. I do not come between you and your child. Let your parental listening and speaking be guided in the relationship. For example, when the recommendation says to the student, find an empathic grown-up to talk to about the bullying issue, ask yourself, am I that parent? Am I that grown-up? Am I that responsible adult? What would it take to create a clearing with my child, the neighbor's child, for that conversation to occur. Finally, I note up front a couple of footnotes because these recommendations, this guidance, makes extensive use of the researches of the following thinkers contributors. Emily Bazelin, whose book, Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying, and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. Her book, 2012, is an inspiration. Her journalistic synthesis of the literature and her incisive interviews are critical path. Also of note, James Garbarino and Ellen Delara, and Words Can Hurt Forever, How to Protect Adolescents from Bullying, Harassment, and Emotional Violence, Year 2002 publication, New York, the Free Press, and a fundamental work of research in the background of all of this conversation, Dan Olweas, O-L-W-E-S, Olweas, Bullying in School, What We Know and What We Can Do, London, Wiley, Blackwell Publishing. I acknowledge the contribution of all of these thinkers and researchers and their empathy up front. Welcome to the show. Bullying, recommendations for students. If one is being bullied, some guidelines are useful, though no single easy answer is available. Remember, the intention is for you, the parent or responsible grown-up or caretaker, to be informed in your listening and speaking as you engage with the student. First, these recommendations are about getting your power back, getting your power back in the face of bullying. Sometimes that looks like making a tactical retreat, much as one might dislike doing so, in order to establish and reestablish boundaries and integrity. The idea is to de-escalate the potential confrontation. What de-escalation looks like is different according to the situation. Second, this is not happening to you, the target of bullying, because you did anything wrong. Stop the negative self-talk, devaluing comments directed at oneself about being to blame for the bad behavior of bullies. Such negative self-talk results in two problems, the bullying and your own negative self-talk. Previously, there was only one problem, the bullying. Now, two problems exist, the bullying and the negative self-talk. Reduce the problems by 50%, stop the negative self-talk. If you cannot seem to stop the negative self-talk, then get help. Get help from a parent or a professional. Get help in doing so. Many different kinds of bullies exist. We've previously discussed that in the first podcast in this three podcast series. And it is not your job to be the bully's 
therapist, or policeman. There is probably no reply to the bully that is so powerful or clever that the bully cannot transform it by using a sing-song, condescending voice. Nana, nana, nana. Even if one says, thank you for respecting my privacy, leave me alone. A statement that makes a great quotation in any subsequent police or administrative report. The risk is that the reply from the bully is going to come back at you like yet another confrontation. This might be worth a try, but no guarantees. Thank you for respecting my privacy. Leave me alone. The bully is behaving the way he or she does in order to get a rise out of the target of the bullying. The intention is to make the target upset. That is the payoff for the bully. That is not to say that one should not shout back if shouted at or push back if one is pushed. That is a judgment call based on the principle that people are entitled to self-defense and based on the details of the situation and one sense that fighting back, otherwise known as self-defense, may make a positive difference in establishing or maintaining a boundary or limit, thus far and no further. Much of this work is about setting a boundary, setting a limit to bullying. We're going around different ways of doing that, different ways of approaching it. However, if one is outnumbered or the bully is physically larger and one's power is diminished, engaging the bully in a back and forth exchange is not going to work. If one can maintain some measure of composure or equilibrium, that's very hard to do when one's being called names, but if one can keep one's wit about oneself, then the process of escalation on the part of the bully can be short-circuited or at least moderated or reduced. Remember, the bully is getting off, key term, getting off on upsetting the target. So, tactically speaking, being boring to the bully is a valid defense. You will be less fun for the bully as the target of bullying, and he will move on to the next target. Notice the use of top-down empathy here. We're getting a sense the bully is actually enjoying it, and that's problematic. So it's not helpful to say to the bully, how would you feel? Because the bully, first of all, is not in touch with his feeling and, or her feeling, and the feeling in this case is one of enjoyment. He's enjoying being a bad boy, a bad girl. So that's not going to work to try to induce empathy. On the other hand, top-down empathy, think like the opponent, put yourself in the other person's shoes, shows that there are ways of setting limits by being less interesting. As said, you will be less fun for the bully, and he or she will move on. Another thing that is done and is potentially life-saving is to keep a bully log, key term, bully log, noting in writing, once one escapes, the occasion on which one was bullied and what exactly was said or done. In the case of cyberbullying, online bullying, this includes printouts with URL and timestamp or screenshots of devaluing comments from email, social media, Facebook, or text messages. Now, I know, I know, the last thing that a kid stressed out by bullying wants to do to think about is documenting what is happening precisely so that one can escalate and get one's power back. But that is what is required. Here, parental guidance, a grown-up supervision is key. One may forget for, to forget about it. One may prefer to forget about it all, but keep in a log with dates and times and names or descriptions if one does not know the name and what exactly was said or done. That is going to be an important part of getting one's power back in the face of bullying. Civic and spiritual leaders such as Gandhi and Martin Luther King have famously pointed out no one can diminish you without your consent. That remains true, and it is always a good reminder to oneself in the face of bullying. However, King and Gandhi and their followers 
actively trained and role-played nonviolent resistance prior to engaging in demonstrations, civic actions, marches, protests, and sit-ins, in which they confronted hostility, prejudice, bullying, and out-and-out violence. Civil rights activists practiced with colleagues. You may not know that. They had workshops and seminars and did work offline before the protest. They practiced with colleagues who pretended role-played being racists, hurling insults and ketchup at the would-be demonstrators in role-playing. In turn, the would-be demonstrators practiced not responding with counter-aggression. And all this prior to actually engaging in anti-segregation sit-ins, public protests, civil disobedience, and so on. One should not have to undertake training in nonviolent resistance in order to survive the ride on the bus to school or the school lunchroom. And the fact that we are now discussing such an area scenario means that something has already gone seriously off the rails. Attempting to transform a culture of segregation and colonialism as King and Gandhi did, or a culture of bullying, is not for the faint of heart. A group of middle school or high school kids misbehaving are not the KKK or the British Empire, though it may seem like it at the time. And such kids cannot be forced to include an outsider when they really decide not to be inclusive. Thus, the coaching to the outsider is to keep looking for a group that is welcoming, welcoming, key term, welcoming. Once again, it takes courage and strength and is a support system and is always easier said than done. People need friends. And for people in middle and high school, relating to friends is an important part of the fun. It is a part of growing up and the non-academic learning that occurs. If you are with a group of people, also called one's peers, and their behavior and speech towards you leaves you feeling less than or upset, then you may need to look at your understanding of what is a friend. If your inquiry to your friends, friends here is in quotation marks because it's not clear they're behaving in a friendly way. If you're asking your friends as to what is really going on, seems to call forth and elicit more of the same upsetting and less than behavior, then you need to re-examine their status as friends. I hope you will not shoot the messenger, me in this case. It is time to move on and seek friendlier friends. One particular bullied LGBT teen made a difference by trying to join a gay-straight alliance group activity as the high school, at the high school. But there was one catch. Before he could join the alliance, he had to create it. It became a significant project and a path to engagement for him and numerous fellow students, both gay and straight. Never underestimate the power of one person with the courage to stand up and say, enough, there's gotta be a better way. Friends may argue, friends may disagree, friends may engage in drama over boy or girl friends. Friends may even decide to stop being friends and go their separate ways. But if you find so-called friends treating you like an outsider, using devaluing language towards you, or being mischievous in ways that are cruel, mean, or aggressive, then it's time to find new friends. If your peer group lets you down, then it is time to seek a new peer group. Once again, this is not easy to do when you are struggling against bullying. However, if you are unable to take action in the direction of finding new friends and relationships because you are so paralyzed by the upset, then it may be because you are anxious or depressed and the intervention of a caring third party is warranted. But where to turn? If you have a good relationship with one or both parents, that is a good place to start. Here, good relationship means you can talk with him or her. It means the parent has the ability to empathize with your predicament and listen to your concerns. It also means 
that you are not going to come away from the conversation being bullied. Older siblings can also be useful if you have a good relationship with him or her. The idea is not to have a grown-up fix the problem for you, but to find a trusted advisor to work with you and what can be done to get your power back in the face of bullying. Though the analogy is imperfect, this is a tad like getting tutoring in geometry or science. Do not expect the tutor to do the homework for you, but together you work to acquire the skills. So you can not only survive the lunchroom or school bus ride, but also even have fun and prosper. If you do not have that kind of empathic relationship with a parent that makes you think the parent can help to improve the situation, then look for a trusted teacher at school with whom one has a relationship. But note the caution I'm about to give about teachers and staff being school bullying mandated reporters. Stand by for update on that. Once again, this should be someone who you believe will listen to you, use her or his empathy to appreciate you, and work with you to improve the situation. If neither your parents nor a trusted teacher at school can be mobilized to intervene, then you should look for someone in the community, such as a coach at the art or sports center, a pastor at church, a coordinator of the LGBTQT group in the community with whom you enjoy a relationship of empathy and trust. If you are being harassed online, request that the website take down the content since the harassing comments violate the rules of the vast, vast majority of most websites. If the site is Facebook, report the abuse immediately via the drop-down item. This picture is of me and I don't like it, or words to that effect. Facebook says that it is committed to taking the word of the reporter you, the student, about harassing comments. Print out the cruel or mean content or make a screenshot. Put all that stuff in a folder. You need to show it to others in authority that this is happening. It is almost never useful to respond to the perpetrator. If you find yourself compulsively checking back for mean contact, take a time out. Power down. Pull the plug. It's not worth it. It might be better to give online activity a break and drop out for a while. Good friends will be able to reach you by phone or in person. Another word of caution is needed, as noted above. If you approach someone in school, a teacher or member of the staff, then this person may be required by law to report the bullying to the school administration. This might be okay if the school has a program in place to deal with bullying. This is also where your written record detailing bullying that has occurred over the past period can be useful and powerful. I wish I could say that this would not result in further bullying with accusations of being a snitch occurring, but the risk of escalation and further bullying, the risk is real and must be considered prior to taking action. If the reputation of the school is one of having a culture that seems to permit a certain amount of aggression and discourtesy, whether towards teachers or one's fellow students, then the risk expands. Retaliation on the part of the bully for complaints about the bullying can become as significant an issue as the bullying itself. Once the school administration is involved, the process can take on a life of its own. The administrator must, that is, is mandated by law or rules, administrative regulations, the administrator must open an investigation and the requirement to gather evidence of bullying can make you feel like you are inside the hall of mirrors at the carnival without, however, anyone having any fun. Grown-ups are notoriously unable to distinguish adolescent drama from out-and-out -out bullying. That's a distinction. Adolescent drama is different than bullying. This is sometimes due to the grown-ups' lack of empathy, but not always. Look at if tweens and adolescents cannot tell these apart, why should the grown-ups necessarily be able to do so? What seemed an open and shut to the target of bullying can take on disturbing nuances once people are interviewed on the record. 
Trying to sort out a bullying report can become an exercise in forensic investigation with conflicting testimony full of he said, full of she said. Are witnesses denying an alleged episode of bullying? Note the legalese, alleged, showing up here because the witnesses don't want to be regarded as snitches or because the episode never occurred? Question mark. We don't have an answer here. It's almost unanswerable. It starts to spin. The school system itself, no matter how empathic and well-intentioned, can seem to work unwittingly to punish all participants, or at least use all the time and effort of all implicated in a given incident in filling out forms, processes, procedures, and attending meetings. The process of determining what happened equal X has now become something to survive, a potential breakdown in empathy and a breakdown in community. Ready or not, one has matriculated in the College of Hard Knocks. However, if the student is being physically assaulted or harassed to the point where the student's schoolwork is suffering, grades and so on are at risk, then it is best to bite the bullet, fill out the online form, fill out the formal report, including the police report if appropriate. Try to take charge of the escalation share the suffering, and learn the lesson in community building. No one should have to suffer in isolation in the face of bullying. Part of the abuse, part of the abuse consists precisely in the bully's attempt to isolate the target. So the best outcomes are those in which one is able to take action to break out of one's isolation, finding new and welcoming friends, martial arts lessons, founding a gay straight alliance at school, chess or science club or both, and so on. Once again, this is easier said than done, but it must be both said and done. If you are someone who is caught up in drama and you are tempted to bully someone, it's time to take a time out. Take a look at your own behavior. Do you really want to be known as someone who is mean or a bully? While put-downs or one-liners might seem like auditioning for a role in a reality television show, hit the pause button. There are better ways of getting into show business. Go out for theater or sign up for an improvisation class. All the world's a stage. And an important part of the training for theater and for success in life is role-playing. Indeed, acting is precisely role-playing. Try taking a walk in the other person's shoes. There are other better shoes and choices than to bully or be bullied. Bullying, recommendations for parents. If your child comes to you with an upset about bullying or you see that he or she is upset about something and the story sounds like bullying, then what should a parent do? This is where empathy goes a long way. Start by listening. Your job as a parent is to support your child and to help your child regulate the child's feelings and behavior. Your job is to help the child regain an emotional equilibrium in the face of life's vicissitudes, including bullying. Parenting is about setting boundaries. First you do your homework, then you go to the mall. First you do your homework, then you play video games online. Parenting is about setting boundaries and empathy is about navigating boundaries. Bullying is about violating boundaries. Therefore, empathy is about restoring boundaries, restoring limits, setting limits in the face of bullying. Being empathically receptive and responsive. That really has got to be a concern. Try to tell me exactly what happened. And then what happened? Say more about that. Okay, but help me understand. He said what? Ask about the details in a concerned, empathic way. Johnny is a jerk. May indeed be true. 
but it is an interpretation. That Johnny said, you're a loser, while pointing at his forehead with his fingers in the shape of an L is a report of a devaluing comment. Do not be dismissive. It's not nothing. Note it. Be concerned. Avoid finger wagging or moralizing. Though you are obviously on the side of your child, do not assume that she or he is an angel. Likewise, if the child is known to have a devilish streak, do not assume, do not assume he or she is the devil. A single example is not bullying in itself, but repeated instances start to form a pattern of concern. A word of caution to parents at this point. One issue that should not be overlooked is how the adult is inevitably confronted with his or her own fate as a child in the face of bullying. In short, if you had a bad experience in bullying that is still unintegrated as an adult, it is going to be there when your child comes to you. If you have unresolved issues around bullying in your own history, when your child comes to you about bullying, a challenging situation becomes all the more challenging for you. You have to distinguish the child's problem from your own issue in order to do your job. As a parent, your priority is to engage, address, work with, solve the child's problem, not your own. Take your own offline. If you need to see somebody professionally, get it handled. Talk to a trusted advisor, a member, other member of the family, other parents. Parenting support groups are powerful. Group work is powerful. Now, this does not mean that the parent has precipitously to go back into therapy. Nothing wrong with that as such, but that the parent must be prepared to identify and use the parent's own experience around bullying as a resource. These experiences, perhaps supposedly long past, will come up promise. This is where parental peer support can be essential and powerful. Consult with other parents with whom you have a relationship of empathy and trust. It is crucial this be a person to whom one can relate without moralizing or finger pointing. If one does indeed have an unresolved issue around bullying, then acknowledge it. Acknowledge it so that one can gain some distance and objectivity about bullying today in the present. In a deep sense, bullying and human aggression have not changed, though they now have online technology at their disposal. But parenting norms, schools, school administrators, and community standards have shifted significantly since baby boomers and even Gen Xers have struggled with bullying in a different world. If when you were a kid, the guidance from your parent was just hit them back and it worked, then you are going to be inclined to provide such guidance. If when you were a kid, you told his mom about his bullying behavior and it worked, as unlikely as that may seem, then your initial inclination is going to be to provide exactly precisely such advice. Even if you wished that you had just hit him back, but were not able to do so, you are going to be inclined to provide such guidance. You see the dilemma? This should not be underestimated. Our concern for our children in the here and now is a function of our own fate as a child in what was and is not always the most empathic of worlds. If one is at a party for five-year-olds, tweens, or adolescents, then one is inevitably going to be present to one's own experiences as a five-year-old, tween, or adolescent. That is a risk and an opportunity. Such experiences from one's own childhood or teen years can be useful resources and should not be overlooked. However, such experiences of surviving bullying are most likely to make a positive difference within the context of an empathic listening to the child currently 
in the here and now, way to school and back and so on, the child currently being bullied, not the context the parent had to survive and overcome years ago. The point is to appreciate the distinction between your own experiences and those of your child. An outgoing or extroverted parent may have a shy or introverted child or vice versa. Yes, certain kinds of bullying are such that a child may properly be expected to handle them on her or his own. However, if the child who used to enjoy school now dreads it, if the grades are suffering, or if a once flourishing child is now floundering, then it is not clear what is going on. Intervention is required. A substantial part of the challenge for the parent is to recreate the context on the school bus, at school, in the lunchroom, on the sports field, the way to and from school, what seems at first to be an open and shut case of meanness or cruelty can turn out to be a complex example of drama, pseudo-sibling rivalry, or bad manners. Debates quickly emerge about who started it, or he said, she said. Try to determine who said what to whom, and then what happened. You may quickly find yourself asking, is there a single fact here? This, however, does not mean that bullying did not occur. It may very well have, and indeed often does. As a parent, you want to document what you have learned, and you want to keep open the lines of communication with your child. Is there a pattern? In order to be useful in supporting your child, you must have a thorough grasp of what is going on. Get the entire narrative, or as much of the narrative, as you can get. If what is happening really is bullying, you'll want to be as specific as possible in order to make a report to the authorities if the problem persists. This is where the difference between handling and handing the child a fish and teaching him or her how to fish is the lesson. Even if the student is an adolescent, the student's request may be to fix the problem and make the bully go away. Wouldn't it be nice? Rarely is that practical. If the bullying is occurring on the way to school or from school, and if one can make a different or take a different bus route, by all means do so. Band-aids have their uses. Tourniquets are essential. Buy time to figure out what is really going on. The tough job of parenting occurs at four levels. One, providing guidance to one's student on how to fend for her or himself. Two, providing explicit training in self-defense or assertiveness if the student can be enrolled in the value of such training. Three, reaching out to the parents of the alleged bully if there's any chance that they are responsive and responsible people who are able to have a civil conversation. Four, intervening with school authorities or law enforcement as a last resort if no other solution can be found. One, share with the student the above-cited coaching in recommendations for students about the dynamics of bullying. Even if you have reason to believe that your child has been provocative and is engaging in drama, begin by asking open-ended questions. No finger pointing, no blame. What happened? What do you think happened? Who said what to whom? What happened next? Do not begin by asking, what did you do to cause this? What did you do wrong? That can seem like blaming the victim. Do not be dismissive. Trust. Trust, but verify. Verify empathically. Providing empathy means that one should provide examples of proper behavior on the part of friends and peers. Friends do not use devaluing hurtful bad language. Friends do not engage in aggressive, hostile actions against one another. And bring up the difficult subject that maybe one needs to find new friends or a suitable, different, extracurricular activity if one continues to be harassed, upset, and made unhappy. One should provide assurances to the child who is or may be blaming him or herself that the child 
you did not do anything to deserve such treatment. Even, you know, if the child has been provocative, I must say, two wrongs don't make a right. By all means, examine one's own conscience, examine one's own behavior, clean up one's own act. It remains true. Two wrongs do not make a right. The child does not deserve to be harassed, bullied, mistreated. No one does. Number two, time was when bullying meant physical aggression. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. We now know that devaluing names too are hurtful. This is especially so when the name calling occurs persistently across different environments, at school, on the bus, online after school, and so on. I know, I know. Why is it that parenting seems to require ever-increasing commitments rather than less? Yet intervention on the part of the grown-up is important, especially if the meanness is escalating. If a student who is being physically assaulted sees value in boxing or Asian martial art lessons, the parent may usefully pick up the extra expense and effort of chauffeuring him or her. It may indeed well be worth it. Self-defense remains a fundamental right. However, if the individual is up against a group or the size differentiation is substantial, such lessons might be good for one's self-esteem and the value of such a contribution is not to be underestimated, but it is of limited practical value in surviving an altercation. For some shy or socially awkward kids, explicit training in social assertiveness is useful and indeed essential. Set a limit. Define a boundary. No is a complete sentence. Thank you for respecting my privacy. Leave me alone. Make a request. Number three, if one is part of a community where one has communication with other parents, it may be worth the risk to reach out to the other parents. It is important to do so in a way that does not land like an incoming accusation or reproach. Your kid did this or that. Wait a minute. Take a, take a pause. Take a beat. Such a conversation would initially be uncomfortable, but that is no reason not to try. The guidance is express concern. I am concerned. I'm concerned about my child. I'm concerned about the children. That's the approach. If you can work with other parents, it provides an example to all, to all the children, of how to resolve conflict in a mature adult way that benefits all involved, that benefits the community. Such a lesson is worth its weight in gold, or at least an associate's degree in counseling. If, however, the parent turns out to be troubled or a part of the problem, then one has perhaps discovered the source of the bully's misbehavior. One has to move on, encourage one's child to leave alone a so-called friend who is making his or her life miserable. Number four, if one has exhausted individual coaching to the child or outreach to other parents, and one still has concern about the child's safety or the impact of bullying on a child's academic results, then it is necessary to approach the school authorities. Remember, these are harried individuals. School authorities already have a long list of academic, administrative, and educational responsibilities. The state legislature has just mandated compliance with rules that schools take on the task of managing and improving a situation in which 10% of a school population of, say, roughly 1,000 students is either a bully or a target of bullying over a given period of time. Meanwhile, a budget increase to provide the resources to increase support and to support the mandate, the budget increase is still pending in the legislature. That means it doesn't exist, meaning, once again, administrators have to do more with less. That is the demand, and it is not an easy one to accommodate. A parent may have a right to stand up in a school board meeting and express concern or even accuse officials of being indifferent to bullying. However, it does put me in mind of Dale Carnegie's dictum, if you want to gather honey, do not knock over the hornet's nest. Rather, find, identify an educator or administrator 
who has the empathy to hear your concern about your child's emotional and academic well-being and its urgency. Time is of the essence. In a time-sensitive situation, specific steps can be taken, such as allowing the child to keep a cell phone with him at all times to call for help, a designated safe room, say, uh, next to the nurse's office, that the child can go to in case he feels unsafe, a special hall pass or permission to arrive a few minutes before class to avoid the bully, or assigning a grown-up to accompany her or him through the hallway. It is important that all the relevant teachers and staff know about this, or it will just become another breakdown, punishing the victim as the phone gets confiscated and so on. In the case of online cyberbullying of tweens, parents may appropriately, indeed must, have access to the online passwords. Parents may usefully know what site the children are visiting. Even if one has a phobia for technology, it is imperative for the parents of kids using computers to have a minimum of computer literacy to supervise the kids' involvement with electronic media. It is a tad stealthy, but I would not rule it out, to have the child train you with her email or Facebook account, and then use what you have learned to empathically monitor their behavior and their use of these accounts. You would not simply give the kids the keys to the car and say, hey, keep in touch. Funny. The internet is different than the open road, but hazards and risks exist in abundance in online cyberspace too. Since no parent has enough time to monitor the totality of anyone's online activity, it would be crazy even to try. Start out like the wise teacher who begins with strictness and eases up thereafter based on proper behavior and feedback. Manage by exception. Trust but verify. If spending time engaging online becomes an upset to the child, then an empathic inquiry as to what is happening is needed. Expectations for online behavior should be made clear. Just as one would not use devaluing language, ethnic, or racial insults in person, so too one should not do so online. If one if you or one is the target of such behavior, then it must be documented, monitored, and neutralized through appropriate interventions. Document and escalate. Why is it that people forget you can turn off the computer or not go to certain sites? Parents' own good examples of laying aside electronic devices and relating in person to other persons speak volumes to kids. So does any behavior on the part of parents that demonstrates commitment to drama or using social media to drive personal conflicts. Business people and politicians now have a rule about email and comments on social networks, even if they don't always follow their own good behavior. Write every electronic comment or communication so that it could be published on the front page of the Wall Street Journal without creating an embarrassment. The reason? Because the communication will eventually migrate there. This is an essential rule of thumb going forward. There is also a rule on the level of Sir Isaac Newton's ironclad laws of motion that naked or compromising photos taken by a person migrate inevitably in the direction of social media. So don't take any and delete any that might already exist before it's too late. The expectations of privacy are such that online communication can no longer reasonably be expected to be private. Perhaps they ought to be private. Perhaps the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution against unreasonable search and seizure still holds sway in courts and the halls of justice in the USA. I hope it does. I believe that it does. But online cyberspace does not work that way anymore. Facebook is de designed so that people are given incentives to broadcast their personal and private data. As Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook, is reported to have said, quote, privacy is no longer the norm, end quote, implying that publicity is. Here, take my personal data, please. Here, see what I am eating, who I am befriending, who I am dating, what I am wearing or not wearing, what I am reading, where I am checking in geographically, what I like, what I don't like, what I'm thinking, and at all times. 
I note, as this podcast is being recorded, the Wall Street Journal publishes a powerful, penetrating series of investigating reporting. I would have to call it debunking. Facebook is, according to these articles, not even following its own rules. I quote, the Wall Street Journal, the Facebook files, a Wall Street Journal investigation by Jeff Horwitz, Keach, Hagley, Newley Purnell, Sam Schechner, and Emily Glazer, not to be missed. Meanwhile, if you really need to have a private communication, and I know this is a tad cynical, but I can't resist the point. If you really need to have a private communication, send a letter by U.S. mail. It does put me in mind of Miranda Lambert's country western song. If you had something to say, you'd write it on a piece of paper, you put a stamp on it, and they'd get it three days later, before everything became automatic. Words to live by. This may sound more than a tad nostalgic, and I am not sure that I could explain it to an 11-year-old. So if your 11-year-old is citing the 14th Amendment to you as a reason for not handing over his password, congratulations. You have a Clarence Darrow for the defense in the making. I hope you can afford law school. But you then get to explain that probable cause creates an exception and a parental search warrant. Hand over the password, buddy, or hand over the device. Bullying. Recommendations for teachers and administrators. The media provide sensational, even tragic reports about bullying, but they less frequently provide useful guidance or actionable information. We have to separate bullying from conflict and drama between peers of roughly equal power. Attention-grabbing headlines have provided a call to action for educators in middle and high school and for state legislatures who had been distracted by other priorities and were perhaps looking the other way. A few dramatic high-profile suicides and many low-profile emotional breakdowns, not to mention major litigation from outraged parents, have persuaded school administrators of the importance of intervening on behalf of the most vulnerable bullied members of the community. Yet it is also important to realize that grown-ups are not the only source of relief from tween and adolescent bullying. In no way is it blaming the victim that the targets of bullying need to take crucial action on their own behalves to improve the outcomes of unwanted harassments and assaults. The first empathy lesson for administrators is that empathy is on a spectrum that extends from being firm about setting boundaries and limits all the way to tough love. As every administrator knows, education is impossible if a school that is out of control surrounds the classroom. In other words, the classroom, most usefully, must be surrounded by an entire school system that is itself under control, that is to say, in a state of equilibrium approaching a certain amount of harmony. Even if there is a certain amount of adolescent chaos, we must be able to dance in the chaos. A school is a system, and the hallways and the classrooms must be calm, sufficiently calm, in order for education to work. Before we turn to the details of how empathy plays in this context, background is useful. And here I rely on the work of Dan Ulwis, the Swedish and Norwegian uh, research investigator who laid down a powerful and penetrating foundation of bullying research. In December 1982, three elementary school students, 10 to 14 years old, killed themselves near Tromso, Norway. All three had been bullied. For example, one had been called a leper because of his measles scars, an insult, frankly, that I had not previously heard. These tragedies galvanized Norway. Previously, 
Bullying had been regarded as something that kids had to work out for themselves on the street. These tragedies provided evidence that the most vulnerable members of the community required intervention. Dan Olweus, who had studied bullying extensively in nearby Sweden, but who was without popular support there for his research recommendations, was invited to come next door to Norway to help out. He surveyed 130,000 students. Some 15% were involved in bullying either as perpetrators or targets. Olwe's research challenged many assumptions. It challenged the assumptions that upper-class high school students were less frequent bullies than their underclass peers, or that urban kids were more likely to bully than their countryside fellows. Bullying was an equal opportunity issue. The targets of bullying were significantly weaker physically and more vulnerable to anxiety, but for the most part, they did not look or dress significantly different than any others in the group. Now, time and space do not permit a comprehensive review of Olweus's bullying prevention program, but it focused on transforming the culture of the entire school, providing authoritative and positive role models, providing improved overall supervision, and improved intervention in individual cases. In the initial pilot, eight months after the program was introduced, there was 50% less bullying, but also significantly less vandalism and theft. Less vandalism and theft. Olweus's approach anticipated the crime-fighting approach of reducing major crimes by fixing the broken windows in abandoned buildings and arresting the petty turn-style jumpers on public transit. They are these are individuals who might escalate to more serious offenses if they are allowed to get away with minor offenses. They are halted early in the course of their boundary-violating careers. Their relatively minor criminal behaviors get short-circuited before they can advance to more serious misdeeds. Now, I hasten to add that this approach has itself become highly controversial here in the USA, here in the States, and has been subject to severe criticisms, I think uh, because it has been badly implemented. A turnstile jumper does not need to spend four years in prison. That would show, hey, you just don't get the approach here. Now, if that individual happened to be a known felon for, you know, drugs and, and, and serious felonious crimes, not merely drug, we're not talking about a dime bag, we're talking about serious felonies, then uh, that may indeed be appropriate response. However, uh, I, I submit to uh, your uh, consideration that such an approach has value when it is properly in, implemented. And in the case of, uh, of school bullying, we're going to see that it's important to give the young person proper counseling, not just sanctions. We're going to talk more about that momentarily, so stand by for update. Norway devoted significant resources to the issue of bullying. Here in the USA, legislative compliance mandates ordering schools to solve the problem of bullying, oftentimes, disturbingly often, without providing resources or money. These are taken the easy way out. Mandates to comply do not work precisely because a mandate without resources is at best a well-intentioned but empty gesture, covering the proverbial rear end of the politician. To be sure, the indifference of some school administrators has been a cause for concern, regardless of the inaction or action of state legislatures. But the commitment of many, if not most, school administrators and educators is flat out a cause for concern. These individuals get into this business of education because they want to make a difference for the children. Dedicated, committed, hardworking people. Meanwhile, Emily Bazelon, B-A-Z-E-L-O-N, Emily Bazelon reports on a case study, a school, Old Mill North, 
that had a reputation for roughness and was demonstrably spiraling downward, but it was pulled back from the brink and turned around by a program inspired by Olwyas. This is not a one-size-fits-all narrative, but numerous lessons, including empathy lessons, exist and can be generalized. No matter how inspiring or talented the individual teacher, education is impossible if the classroom is surrounded by a school that is out of control. The hallways and the classrooms must be calm in order for the process of education to get the traction it requires to produce educated students. Bullies are put on notice that teachers and administrators are decidedly not happy about their behavior. Such individuals have been poorly socialized and it is going to catch up with them. They need to get in touch with their inner jerk, have a conversation for possibility about recognizing one's peers as peers, about being respectful about boundaries and common courtesy. They can do better. If one can get the peer group to validate the language of respect for boundaries, courtesy, and an optimum measure of toleration and empathy, then the behavior eventually catches up with the rhetoric of respect and the behavior significantly shifts and improves. As noted, empathy is on a spectrum that extends from being firm about boundaries, but nice about it, all the way to tough love. Some students are not interested in respecting the boundaries that mark a commitment to education and they really do not belong in school. In the pilot study in Norway, some 52 kids were expelled. This was not in Norway, correction. This was at Old Mill North, the study that Emily Basilin reports on. Some 52 kids were expelled from Old Mill North. Likewise, the teachers were assessed. Now here, this is really shows you that these people mean business. If the teachers were not committed to transforming the culture of the school in the direction of excellence in education, they were encouraged to seek positions at other schools in the system. They were not expelled, but they were counseled out. This is not going to happen without the involvement of the school board and the community. There has, there has to be, at a high level, a clearing for commitment that may or may not be practical in any large metropolitan school system. Nevertheless, some 22 out of 66 teachers left the school. How shall I put it delicately? This was no longer business as usual. At Old North, a significant minority of the student body was still more than a tad rough around the edges by the time they got to middle school. Some students literally did not know what to do when one student bumped into another passing in the hallway. They needed to be taught to say, excuse me, pardon me, I'm sorry, instead of telling the other person, drop dead, loser. Similarly, with common courtesy in the cafeteria, at Old North, a broad intervention with the students provided explicit guidance in what was expected of them by way of behavior. Thus, the students were drilled in social skills, such as acknowledging the feelings of others, making eye contact, and conflict management, such as making a request, saying no, or agreeing to disagree. In short, they were trained in empathy. Some, some bullies are indeed thugs and need to be removed the, from the community in order to protect the community from them. But other bullies are themselves survivors of abusive situations for example, at home. They exhibit mental health issues, have a diagnosable cognitive impairment, and require intervention. That means counseling, support, somebody to talk to, and empathic listening. I don't mean in this case, suspension and expulsion, although at some point that may also be a valid part of setting a limit, setting a boundary. That is no excuse. There is never an excuse for bullying behavior. That is to say, a diagnosable cognitive impairment or a diagnosable mental health issue. There is no excuse and is never an excuse for bullying behavior. However, it does mean that to prevent repetition of the bullying after a suspension has been served, 
these individuals need guidance. Many need treatment, whether such treatment is full-blown dynamic talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, bullies may usefully undertake an inquiry into their own abusive behavior in order to shift out of a pattern that is creating misery around them. It's worth repeating. If it's mean, intervene. That's the guidance for the authorities, for the administrators, the teachers. If it's mean, intervene. However, intervention is not the same as automatic discipline. Suspension and expulsion should be used only when the immediate concern is safety and followed up with evaluation for and of the individual for depression, anxiety, conduct disorder, or other emotional issues or problems at home. Extrinsic motivation was indeed applied in this example at Old North. Using positive behavior-based interventions and support, along with the Pledge of Allegiance, the school day began with reciting the school commitment. Quote, be respectful, responsible, and on task, end quote. That means say please, say thank you, do your homework, and participate in class. An internal courtesy and currency of courtesy was introduced. A currency of courtesy. Passport patriots. Patriot passports. This is a blue piece of paper. Blue slips that teachers handed out when students were identified as doing something well. The teacher mentioned and meant it as recognition and a statement, I like the way you did that. A gimmick? Perhaps. But the underlying value was in building a positive relationship between students and teachers. Instead of handing out detention slips, getting into an adversarial role, teachers were in a friendly role of recognizing students for a job well done. Those teachers who used up all their blue slips got a gold star on their door and more slips. The slips could be redeemed for PTA-sponsored school supplies, ice cream at a social, a school movie, or getting to the head of the line in the cafeteria. One word of caution. Peer mediation. Key term, peer mediation. Let this have the students meet and work it out. Peer mediation is not a good method for dealing with bullying. Peer mediation makes sense when the two kids are of roughly equal power. However, putting a bully and the target of bullying in the same room together is a bad idea. I repeat, bad idea. This is so even if a grown-up is present to help mediate. Bad idea. Bullies are skilled at saying the right thing in the moment and then retaliating later. If the students are roughly equal in power and the infraction involves drama, not bullying, then peer mediation may perhaps make sense. But otherwise, it is just putting the fox to guard the chickens. The chickens aren't going to make out very well. Things are not going to go well. Once a measure of calm was restored to the hallways at Old North, then those students who continued to be disruptors tended to stand out. They could be provided with the services they required to gain control over their behavior and emotions instead of missing even more academics by being sent to the principal's office or suspended. Instead of being given a suspension and sent home, the disruptors were given confidential psychological assessments for depression, anxiety, substance abuse, conduct disorder, and self-esteem. They were required to watch videos about bullying and consider their own behavior in relation to what they saw. Teachers who were chronic yellers were trained in other methods of de-escalating conflict with students who were disrespectful or difficult. This was not a two-week effort. Six years into the program, scores on standardized achievement tests had improved enough for the school to introduce the International Baccalaureate Program to further drive academic excellence. Reducing bullying is good for academics. In summary, schools that support such efforts find that bullying of all kinds is reduced, not merely that directed at kids who are eccentric, 
socially awkward, new to the community, LGBTQ. Of course, if the school's grown-ups are still struggling ineffectively with their own homophobic issues, then survivors must look for alternative communities outside the school. These alternatives outside of school run the gamut from sports to book clubs. It is not blaming the survivor to say, hey, it's going to take something from you too in building a community that works for everyone. Martial arts and boxing are powerful compensatory activities for people who tend to be shy, but such people have to overcome their own introverted tendencies even to sign up. The very behavior that is stopping them is also part of the behavior that is leaving them vulnerable to bullying. The breakthrough is already present in stopping procrastinating and taking action to get such training. In conclusion, the lesson is that empathy builds community and communities demonstrate empathy by being inclusive. Yet rare is the individual who transforms the authenticity and integrity of an entire community in order to join such a community with integrity and authenticity. What would an anti-bullying club even look like? It might look like a LGBT alliance, but it might also look like jogging, biking, or history club. Don't just be anti, as proper as that is in the case of bullying, but be pro-engagement, pro-inclusion, and community. As David Burnham said in a different context, make no small plans. Empathy is the foundation of no small community.